0: Hello and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Paul Post, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Chicago. Paul, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be joining the show again after a few years.
0: I want to start out by asking you about the word hegemony. You did one of your famous Twitter threads on this recently. What is hegemony in international relations?
1: Hegemony is only the biggest concept in all of international relations, right? And I mean that in all the ways in which the word biggest could be used, right? Um, it is a central idea in international relations. You can trace this idea I mean, obviously, it's a very old term. It's a Greek term. It goes back centuries. But in terms of its usage in international relations, it is a term that was used really near the beginning of even the development of the field. But it's also big in terms of what it is connoting. It is, it is about being large and influential. So what is hegemony? Well, at its core, in simplest, hegemony just means you are a big country that has immense influence. That's fully what it means. If you are the hegemon, you are a large country with immense influence. Now, that doesn't mean you're the only large country in the world. And so, you know, oftentimes we want to think about how the concept hegemony intersects with another important concept in international relations called polarity, which of course is used a lot. And that's reference to how many major powers are in the world. So there could be multiple major powers, but one of them could be very large and willing to use its power and size and capabilities in order to influence international politics. A good example of a, or at least as scholars will typically talk about it, a good example of a hegemon in a multipolar system is typically thought of as the British during the 19th century, early 20th century, where obviously there were multiple major powers, but the British, especially economically, had huge influence On the international system. What that meant is they had the ability to shape the international system, especially in the economic sphere. The other hegemon that's typically discussed is, of course, the United States. Now, during the Cold War, the U.S. was referred to as a hegemon, but because we were in a bipolar system, the U.S. was not the global hegemon. They were the hegemon within the Western Bloc. And then since the Cold War, especially during what we refer to as the unipolar moment, meaning that the U.S. is the only major power. Well, of course, in that case, the U.S. is also considered to be the hegemon. And so that's just in a nutshell what hegemony is referring to is that you are a major power that has such substantial capability that you are able to influence international affairs, even influence other great powers. Now, there's other related ideas to this, such as, are you even willing to use that power? And that's indeed something that we can talk about, is what determines that willingness and the influence. So it's not just a matter of, just because you are extremely large and powerful, you will act as a hegemon. But, again, at its core, it's about being this extremely large, powerful country that has the ability to influence international affairs.
0: So I am going to get to those uh, that willingness uh, uh, variable, but before moving on, I want to ask you about hegemonic stability theory. Um, my understanding is that this theory is somewhat under-supported in, in the literature, although there are plenty of scholars that, that use it and play off of it. Can you just talk about this concept and maybe some of its strengths and weaknesses?
1: I'm glad you asked about hegemonic stability theory because um, I'm glad you asked about it for a few reasons. Number one, it is within the field of international relations. It's probably the most prominent way in which hegemony is used, at least theoretically, hence the title, right? Hegemonic stability theory. It also creates a nice segue for starting to talk about this willingness variable because the theory actually puts this willingness central to it. So hegemonic stability theory, we typically trace this back to the work of an economist, and that is Charles Kindleberger. Charles Kindleberger published a book in the early 1970s titled World in Crisis, or World in Depression, excuse me. And what he was dealing with, hence the title of the book, was the Great Depression. And why is it that the Great Depression happened during the 1930s? A big part of his argument was that There was not a stabilizer. He didn't use the word hegemony. He used the word stabilizer. And he said that for the world economy to operate and function properly, meaning open trade, flow of financial resources that are smooth and not disrupted, you have to have a stabilizer. And moreover, he went so far as to say you have to have a stabilizer, one stabilizer. There has to be one country that is willing to take on this role and able to take on this role of stabilizing the global economy. Meaning, if there are other countries who are unwilling to allow their market to be open to goods, you as the stabilizer are willing to allow your market to be open to goods. You refer to this as market for distressed goods. You are willing to allow your currency to be widely traded. So, that it helps facilitate global finance and global trade. And there are countries, of course, not willing to do that, but this is something the hegemon has to do. Hegemon might also have to be willing to use its financial resources to essentially bail out other countries, right? If they're in financial distress, kind of as we think about you know, the US government when it steps in and bails out a bank. The idea is that a hegemon would, or the, excuse me, the stabilizer, using the word that Kindleberger used, would step in and play this role to help stabilize. That would be. You know example of, a, of your central bank lending money to other central banks to help them in financial distress. So this was Kindleberger's theory, and he used it to say that the reason why the Great Depression happened was because there was no stabilizer during the 1930s. The British had served that role during the 19th century and up to World War I. But then because of World War I, they went off the gold standard. There was changes to London as a financial market, to the global economy. And they were no longer in a position after World War One to play this role anymore. They were willing, they wanted to, but they weren't able to anymore. And the United States, in contrast, was now in a position to actually play this role. But the U.S. was not willing to play this role. They instead were doing things like imposing the Smoot-Hawley tariff, for example. And so what he says is that there was just there was no stabilizer. Nobody was willing to step up and play this role during the 1930s, and that's why the global economy went to depression. And then, of course, after World War II, he says now the United States is stepping up and taking on this role, and it is now a willing and able hegemon. And so that's the idea of hegemonic stability theory. And again, it's, it's very much relying on this notion of willingness, and of course, as you said, we, we want to unpack what does it mean? How do you become willing? But just setting aside that question for now, just the theory itself relies on the notion that the stabilizer hegemon is willing to take on this role. As you also said, though, there's a lot of questions about the empirical validity of this this theory, right? Because it's like, well, Mm -hmm. if we think about Kindleberger, he mentions the British, he mentions the United States, who else? And that's actually been one of the common criticisms is it seems like it's a theory just built around these two cases – And how do we apply it further? And so for a while, it actually fell out of kind of disfavor amongst scholars because they said, look, how do you actually test this with just two cases? But it is a theory that actually started to pick up a lot of attention again over the past several years because of, for example, during COVID, the idea that there doesn't seem to be any country willing to step in and stabilize the global economy. And then also because of the disruptions caused to the global economy by the war in Ukraine, there was this idea of, you know, is the U.S. serving in this role of stabilizing the Western economies, but maybe not the global economy? It's, It's led scholars, again, to say, you know, there might have been a there there with this notion of hegemonic stability theory. But again, that's the overall idea is that you the hegemon has to play this role of stabilizer, and they will play this role when they are both willing and able to play this role.
0: Okay, so let's get to the willingness uh, variable. Um, You recently delineated four explanations for why a state might be willing to fulfill this hegemonic role. The easy model, the accident model, uh, the virtuous model, and the exploitative model. Can you go through each of those?
1: So this really gets to the heart of hegemonic stability theory. As we've been talking about this, this theory relies on this notion of willingness. I've already hinted at willingness. And so, yes, what I did was I kind of laid out, well, what determines if you're willing? And as you just mentioned, I put forward these four possible explanations. I should add these aren't exhaustive. There could be other explanations that are in play because this is really an idea that has led some to say that maybe the theory is under-theorized because it's, you know, it's like, okay, there's a, the world is stable when there's a country willing to stabilize it, right? You know, so it's like, okay, that seems a little bit like circular, but there are some things that we've looked at and that scholars have looked at to kind of determine when would a country maybe not necessarily want to play the role of hegemon, but definitely want to play the role of pursuing policies that are consistent with being a hegemon such as open trade and so forth. So let's walk through each one of these models. So the first model is, yeah, as you said, the easy model. And this one is just, its hegemony is easy when it's easy to be a hegemon, right? Like if you're so powerful and there's nobody else who's even close to you, then why not? Why not be the major power that opens up global markets? And a good example of this is actually when the British implemented a policy that is typically pointed to as a stabilizing policy and that is when the british in the middle of the 19th century implemented a unilateral free trade policy they just said you know what no more tariffs on any goods coming into the uk and the reason why they did this wasn't because of some like epiphany of you know being virtuous or what have you they were like no this is this is easy we're a dominant economy And we need these imported raw materials because we dominate the world in manufactured goods. So yeah, we'll just go ahead and open up our markets, allow these to come in so we can then use them to make our manufactured goods. So it was was easy in that sense. Same thing with the United States playing a role after World War II of creating the Bretton Woods institutions and then supporting the creation of the General Agreement on tariffs and trade, that the U.S. was so dominant economically that they could – play this role and also shape the system in the way that they wanted it to be shaped. I mean, this was the famous uh, phrase, uh, famous amongst economic historians and so forth. But you know, at the Bretton Woods negotiations in 1944, I think it was Lord Halifax maybe said to John Maynard Keynes, and Keynes was the lead of the British delegation there. He said, you know, we have all the ideas, but they've got all the money, <laughs> right? I mean, that, so at the end of the day, we have to kind of do what the U.S. wants, right, because um, it, it, we just don't have another choice. So that's the idea of the easy model is that, sure, we'll play the role of stabilizing the global economy because it's going to benefit. I mean, basically, the global economy is us, right? That's, and so that's, that's the idea of the easy model. So it's kind of a baseline model. It doesn't really go beyond anything except just saying that, hey, if a country is so powerful, they'll take on this role. The next one is somewhat related, but it goes more into some particulars, and that is the accident model. This one is not so much focused on the position of the country in the global economy like the accident model is. This one is about domestic politics. And what it is, is it's saying that a country will pursue policies that are stabilizing to the global economy, not because they're thinking about the global economy, but because they're adhering to certain domestic interest groups, right? And in fact, they'll they'll also do the opposite. If there's a lot of powerful domestic interest groups that want protectionist policies, then they're going to pursue those protectionist policies. This goes back to one of the classic works in political science, which is Shat Snyder's Politics of the Tariff that was published in the 1930s. And it was about why did the Smoot-Hawley Tariff get passed? And he talks about the various farming interests that wanted this and how they had influence in Congress, and that's what led to the passage of it. By the same token why would the U.S. want to lower tariffs or go back to the British with unilateral free trade policy? Why would they lower tariffs? Well, it wasn't because they were thinking about the global economy. There were domestic interests that wanted lower tariffs. They wanted the lower price imports to maybe serve as inputs into their goods that they were producing. And so it created this kind of, you know, it was just by accident that they take on this role of being a hegemon. The third model is the notion of, is the virtuous model. And this one is not so much virtuous in terms of enlightenment, but in virtuous in terms of there's this virtuous cycle, right? Which is that the hegemon takes on the role of stabilizing the global economy because that in turn helps their own economy, right? So the hegemon's economy is doing well, the global economy is doing well, and vice versa. And that is what means that it's like this virtuous circle and it's related to the accident one, but it's a little bit more deliberate. It's the idea that, hey, what's good for the global economy is good for us. So, therefore, we are going to take on this role of helping to stabilize the global economy. And you'll often hear that type of rhetoric in reference to, say, when US policymakers are talking about needing to take a leading role in global economic affairs. And they'll say, like, you know, what's good for the global economy will help the United States. It's in our interest for that reason. So that's, that's the idea of the virtuous circles, that the hegemon does this because they recognize that it actually is beneficial to them and vice versa. And then the final one is the exploitive model. And the exploitive model is a little bit the opposite of the virtuous model. So the virtuous model is we're going to help the global economy because it helps us. The exploitive model is we're going to, yes, this stuff helps us, but we're actually going to do things that aren't necessarily in the best interest of everybody else right? We're going to put ourselves in a position of being a stabilizer because that in turn gives us the ability, if we wish, to exploit that, right? And that could be, that could lead to the whole idea that's become very prominent of weaponized interdependence, right? That this notion that the U.S. is so central to various aspects of the global economy that when they need to, they can pull those levers to coerce countries to pursue policies that those countries wouldn't otherwise pursue. And so they can weaponize interdependence in that way. So you pursue policies in order to grow the global economy, in order to make yourself more central to the global economy, with the idea that you can then exploit those when you need to for other reasons. And of course, economic sanctions being like a good example of a benefit of being central to global economies, you can then use it for those exploitive purposes. Now, none of these, as I said, these aren't the only four reasons. And you could even say that these reasons aren't mutually exclusive. They There could be multiple factors. In fact, depending on, you know, if we go back and look at the records in 1944, 45, 46, when the U.S. was in this position for World War II, I'm sure you would see different members of, say, first FDR and then Truman's cabinet probably expressing variations on each of these ideas, right? And so it's not to say that any of these are the answer, but I think together they do give you a sense of why a major power would want to take on this role of hegemony.
0: So those are all very helpful models to think about this. I wonder if I can ask you to put your kind of speculative hat on and try to apply this to one potential candidate for future hegemony china how do you assess their willingness now and perhaps into the future
1: so china is obviously the country that many people keep pointing to as if there's another country that could take on this hegemonic role it would be china to me there's some reasons to understand why people would say that but there's also reasons to question whether china would actually be in this position to be a hegemon. So the reasons why people bring this up is obviously the growth of China's economy, the size of China's economy, depending on what measure of economic size you use. They're either the same as the US or bigger or larger or smaller. I mean, it it just depends on what you look like, but it's nevertheless clear that they are this large economy, growing economy, and so could be in a position to actually play the role of hegemon. But I think there's a few things that lead me to wonder if that will actually happen. And one of them is dealing with ability. The other one is dealing with willingness. And I think the willingness even more so. So the ability is obviously China's economy is having troubles. They're going through a slowdown. There's huge property, real estate issues, um, banking issues. And so China's economy is not fully... Dialed in to the extent to where they are in this position to say, exercise the easy model, right? Of, oh, of course, you know, everything's fine. Our economy's operating so smoothly and we're so large relative to the global economy. Of course, we'll just take on this role. It's, it's going to be easy for us. Their economy is not quite in that position. But I think the bigger impediment to China taking on the role of the global economic hegemon is willingness. Most notably, is China is not as open relative to the United States when it comes to allowing foreign direct investment and when it comes to allowing foreigners to hold their currency. This is something that the U.S. has long done. There's more dollars outside the United States than inside the United States, right? The U.S. is very open to allowing the U.S. dollar to be utilized, and that is what puts the dollar in this dominant position, in the global economy to be kind of the numeraire, the king currency, or the primary medium of exchange in global trade, even between countries that are not the United States, right? It's like the dollar is just so widely used. And a big reason for that is just because the US is willing to allow the dollar to be used widely and exit the United States. China is not willing to do that to the same extent with the RMB. And so that is a big That's a big factor inhibiting China's ability to become this hegemon. Then the other one is foreign direct investment. The U.S. is very open to foreign direct investment relative to many countries. It's relatively easy to invest in the United States. But in China, there's a lot more restrictions on being able to do that. And so until China opens up in that way, it's also going to be difficult for China to be in a position... Just for one to say that China is truly willing to take on this role of the global hegemon. Now, having said that, China is definitely taking on this role in a smaller context, in a regional context. Um, I think Russia would totally say that China is being uh, stabilizing uh, and that they are willing to purchase, say, Russia's energy resources, um, several other economies being able to sell to China. So they're playing a bit of a role as a hegemon in that manner. But in terms of truly being the global hegemon, that if the global economy is in crisis, they will be the ones to step in and actually address it and stabilize it. And I don't see China as having that willingness.
0: In a recent piece at uh, World Politics Review, you cited former NATO Secretary General uh, Anders Fogh Rasmussen as saying that the conflict and instability engulfing the world can be attributed to American hesitance to actually lead. I think this is a very common way of thinking in in Washington. And to me, the way I read it, the, the idea here is the US government must take an activist and often militarily heavy approach to the world because failure to do so encourages the bad guys to misbehave. First, I think that's a pretty Looney Tunes conception of how states act in international politics. Um, But second, implicit in this notion is that U.S. actions overseas are inherently intrinsically good. There's no proviso in Rasmussen's comment about what kind of actions to take. It's just the do something theory, you know, do something, anything impulse. Um, It's always and everywhere a good thing for the U.S. government to intervene abroad and manage global affairs in an activist manner. And I think you're not nearly as opposed to that kind of activism as, as I am. But can you tell us what's wrong with Rasmussen's way of thinking about the U.S. role here?
1: No, th- th- you phrased it very well. Uh, the way that I often phrase it is I think the... Um, it goes back to Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, and it's the caught trying doctrine, right? That the U.S. should be caught trying. And this builds on the notion of going back to Madeleine Albright of the U.S. as the indispensable nation. But inherent in this notion of be caught trying is just it's good to just be the U.S. needs to be involved. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Just do something, right? So the whole idea, even if you're making a mistake, it's better than not doing anything at all, right? And this is inherent to this idea. And yes, I think that that's not the best way to do things. And it's kind of interesting that Hillary Clinton was, of course, Barack Obama's uh, secretary of state, given that Obama was known for his... The Obama doctrine, which was, you know, as he phrased it, don't do stupid shit, right? You know, and so they kind of go at cross purposes, right? You know, just do anything. But it's like, well, no, 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 no. Make sure this is actually sensible for us to be involved with. Now, one could raise questions about whether to the extent to which Obama actually followed that doctrine. um, But nevertheless, it was an idea that he put out there, which, again, I think very much contrasts with this kind of Clinton notion of be caught trying. So. Going back to Rasmussen's comments, to me, I the bigger problem that I have with his comments was that he said that, look, the instability in the world right now, whether it's not so much economic, but he's definitely referring to all the security issues happening in the world war in Ukraine and Gaza, in fact – I just wrote a piece for The Atlantic back in November about how we're at, we are a world at war. We're not in a world war, but we're a world at war. We're witnessing the most conflict in the world since not just the end of the Cold War, but since the end of World War II. And someone like Rasmussen, of course, is saying, well, this was due to U.S. unwillingness to step in and be caught trying to try to fix all these various problems. And my argument that I put forward in this WPR piece, and it was really kind of one of several pieces I wrote recently for WPR, kind of building out this notion of exploring Biden's foreign policy and the extent to which it truly is an activist foreign policy. What I argued in that piece was that it's not so much that Biden's unwilling to lead, but that the or that the US is unwilling to take action, but that there are limits to what the US can do. And Biden is someone who's very much, I think, aware of these limits. He can't give all the weapons that he wants to give to Ukraine because he's also trying to give weapons to Israel. Now, we could question the logic of doing that. Should he be giving weapons to both? But he's very much aware that I can't do both. We can't deal with both. You know, this is a big reason why he's trying to say he's been pushing Netanyahu to say, look, stop what you're doing, right? And this is, That's a whole other debate, whole other issue. But Biden has been someone who's been very much pushing for, can we try to tamp down some of these other issues because we can't step in and fix all of them? And I think that's been the bigger struggle. Has it been that the U.S. is unwilling to try to do it? It's that we're running up against the limits of what the U.S. can do. That The U.S. does not have the ability. And one could even go as far as to say maybe the U.S. never had the ability to actually be following a cop trying. Uh, doctrine because of the fact that the U.S. didn't actually have the resources to do everything everywhere all at once. We saw that, I think, case in point would be one argument for why the Iraq war did not go well was because we were trying to do too much at once. We had global war on terror. We're involved in Afghanistan. Now we get involved in Iraq, and we tried to do Iraq on the cheap, if people remember. We tried to go in with minimal footprint. So, and the reason why is because we don't have the resources or we didn't want to try to have all the resources to go in full with Iraq. At the same time, because we even went in with that minimal force in Iraq, we didn't have enough resources to actually finish the job in Afghanistan. Right. And so, that right there is an example of where even during a time when people were referring to the United States as the quote hyperpower, the sole dominant power in the world, that was a phrase being used at that time. U.S. still didn't have resources to do everything, everywhere, all at once. And so I think that that's really the bigger issue, is that what we're witnessing now is making very evident the fact that the U.S. does not have the ability to actually pursue a be-caught-trying policy. Whether they should even be trying, even if they did have the ability, is another question. But I think... Even if they want to pursue that ability, they don't have, or that policy, they don't have the ability or the U.S. does not have the ability to actually follow it.
0: Well, maybe I can ask you to um, cite some more examples of where the Biden administration has kind of declined a global leadership role because I'm kind of not seeing it. You know, we're deeply, heavily involved in every major theater overseas the conflicts in the Middle East, uh, in in Europe, actually don't have they have some something to do with U.S. foreign policy in past years. Um, in in Asia, you know that's a, another important theater. Uh, we seem pretty stretched thin. What what is it that the Biden administration, if the Biden administration is bumping up against uh, the declining capabilities relative to our uh, to the rest of the world? What are they declining to do? Where, where is the uh, drop in this do-something attitude? I'll give two examples
1: where I think the Biden administration is running into resource constraints that are inhibiting its ability to play truly the global hegemonic stabilizing role that it, it maybe would want to play, but is unable to play. So the first example is right now the spending bill that's going through Congress Senate passed it, now it's stuck in the House, but that spending bill, which has been around for months, been tweaked and so forth, for new funds to go towards Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. And if you look at the breakdown of this budget, I think it's approximately $95 billion. The vast majority of it, 60, 60 plus billion of it, is going to Ukraine. Another 14 to 20 billion of it is going towards, or even more, is going towards uh, Israel. Then there is, of course, funding going towards other projects, because there's other, or, other projects. But only a little over a billion of it, one to two billion is actually going towards Taiwan. And this is something that several people who are more along the lines of, if you will, China Hawks. But even people who aren't super hawkish about China, you know, like, oh, China is going to be starting a war in the next few years, but would even acknowledge that that is not adequate for really what should be the U.S.'s main priority right now, which is that China is playing this role of challenging the U.S. led system. And if the U.S. is serious about defending that system, they would be dedicating more resources to ensuring that China cannot dominate states in its region relative to, say, a country like Russia where the U.S. it's actually perceived as, you know, the U.S. can actually handle them pretty well as long as we get maybe a little bit other assistance because they're not nearly on the same level of, you know, economic level as a China in order to be able to truly threaten U.S. interests globally. But China can't. So that's one example is kind of the inadequate attention given to what – is perceived as a key US interest which is countering China and not even a key perceived as an interest by like again outsiders of the administration Biden himself has even said that China is like our main competitor right this is a country we really need to be focused on and yet the spending bill doesn't capture that and i think that this is not because Biden maybe doesn't want more for taiwan but because of the constraints he's running up against so that would be one example The other example is very much closer to home. And that is a big thing that I've been criticizing the Biden administration for is the fact that because they're so focused on other areas, they're not giving enough focus to Latin America, to our own hemisphere. And I think this is directly a product then of what is contributing to what people are referring to as the border crisis, the immigration crisis, because there's obviously issues closer to home In neighboring countries that need to be addressed, that the U.S. could play a larger role in helping to address, that is then leading to people fleeing those countries, trying to get to the United States, seeking asylum in the United States. And the Biden administration, I feel like, is not prioritizing that to the level as they're prioritizing other policies. Now, part of that could be because when it comes to Latin America, yes, it's dealing with our border, but it's not directly countering a major power, right? And that might be the argument that's being made, is that, well, when it comes to funding to Ukraine, that's countering Russia. When it comes to Taiwan, that's countering China. But then where does that put U.S. policy towards funding Israel? And that's not countering a major power. Now, we can make arguments about whether U.S. should or shouldn't be doing that. I'm not questioning that. But if the argument is, well, the U.S. really doesn't need to focus on Latin America as much because we need to be focusing on countering major powers, well, we're not consistently doing that with all our policies. So I think those are two examples that for me where it's clear that the Biden administration is not actually prioritizing things in a way that I think is fully consistent with wanting to maintain its position as a leader in the global system.
0: You cite an old piece from Kenneth Waltz, Counseling Forbearance. And by this, I think he means roughly what we tend to mean these days when we talk about that America should exercise restraint in its foreign policy. And then in the same vein, you write that, quote, Washington's diminished ability to be assertive in global affairs isn't necessarily a bad thing. Can you expand on that?
1: Yes. So what... the Kenneth Waltz quote that I, that I shared was one that really jumped out to me as being somewhat prescient. Like, wow, he really kind of nailed something here in terms of worry, because he, he made that statement at a time when the, it seemed like the U.S. might go on to try to do everything everywhere all at once. And very much saying, like, I don't think that's going to be a good idea, but that is something that is hard to resist for a major power to do. Um, But this notion that maybe they should be trying to dial back. And my sense from reading that is that I think there is something to that. And I was, again, I felt like it was very prescient when I read that. Now, how does that Waltz quote then fit into the idea that the U.S. exercising forbearance isn't necessarily a bad thing? And I think this very much goes back to the things we've been talking about, is that, again, I'm definitely not someone that thinks the U.S. should become isolationist and pull up the stakes and and come back home and just focus on issues at home and ignore the rest of the world. But there is this notion that I think the U.S., and we've already talked about it, where there is not a systematic prioritization of what U.S. policy should be. And instead, what you end up doing and part of this is by design, part of this is by accident, but instead what you end up in is a little bit of you know, what you could call almost like a whack-a-mole foreign policy. right? Rather than sitting there and saying, what are our core interests, what are the priorities we need to be pursuing, and this is what we're going to focus on, instead you're like, oh, there's this crisis, we better address that crisis. Oh, now there's this crisis, we better address that crisis. And I think that that's very much been the situation that the Biden administration's been in where at first the major crisis that came about was Ukraine, right? And because of Ukraine, it's like, okay, we got to address that. And then suddenly then the war on Gaza, oh, well, I guess we got to address that. And almost to the point of, okay, then we'll reallocate some things from Ukraine to Israel, even though you sit there and go, well, does that even make sense? Do you even need to be doing that? Let alone whether you should be doing that, but do you even need to be doing that? Well, no, we have to show that we're supporting Israel, so we'll reallocate here. But then that means we're not giving money to Taiwan, even though Biden actually started his administration very much prioritizing Taiwan, even to the point of saying that, yes, the U.S. has a commitment to defend Taiwan, and that led some people to get nervous and freak out. But as we're just going back to what we're talking about, they're not allocating the money in the same way to that. And so as a result, you end up with like this kind of incoherent foreign policy of, again, kind of the whack-a-mole, here's the crisis, we'll try to address this and we'll try to address this one, versus saying, all right, what are our priorities? What do we really need to be zeroed in on? And it's not to say that we shouldn't give support to these other ones, but we have to be clear about what is important and what is not important. And we are going to make sure that we're supporting Taiwan to the extent that we can support Taiwan, even if that means we're going to have to give less support to, say, Israel in order to support Taiwan. And it's not because, again, one could argue whether we should be supporting Israel, but the argument would be Israel can handle things better on their own than Taiwan can, right? That would be the argument for let's reallocate these resources. But instead, because the war in Gaza is the latest crisis, you end up overcommitting there, and then you don't have resources left for the thing that's truly a priority. We also see this, something we haven't even brought up yet, is A policy the Biden administration pursued early on in his administration that was very much like not a critic of, but a cynic of. And that was the summit of democracies, right? That, you know, he was going to have this summit of democracies, bring all these countries, we're going to focus on this. and, And it wasn't even clear exactly what they were hoping to achieve from this. Though, as I argued at the time, I said, well, it's not about who's being invited. It's about who's not invited. And who wasn't invited was, of course, China. I viewed the summit of Democracies as a way for Biden to start building up more of a coalition to counter China. Well, that's, I mean, it's still happening, but it's, it's become like, it's been pushed to the side. It's very much been pushed to the side because of these other priorities, even though, or these other issues, even though it came in, he came in as this was a priority. I think that's a big reason why he was focused on completing the withdrawal from Afghanistan. He's like, okay, you know, he came in administration, our priorities are this, Afghanistan is not a priority, we're going to pull out. But again, once Ukraine gets started and other issues come up, you start going back to this, you know, just China chasing crises instead of focusing on the priorities. So that's the reason why I think the U.S. could benefit from a bit of this forbearance.
0: Um. In, an, in a different piece for WPR, you talked about um, something that you crept up to referencing there, and that's Biden's rhetoric uh, in his foreign policy about democracy versus autocracy. Um, and you essentially argue that uh, that's, might, that might be a part of the rhetoric, but it's not driving policy. You argue that the Biden administration's approach to foreign policy is realpolitik from top to bottom. <clears throat> and that this, this democracy rhetoric is, is really just talk and it's not, it's not driving things. I guess, first of all, why are they employing that rhetoric if it's not informing their policy? It's a great
1: question because, indeed, this, is, this has been a debate about – and, in fact, it even led to a mini-debate uh, between myself and Stephen Wertheim who argued – in the Atlantic, that indeed this has been central to the Biden administration's foreign policy, and my WPR piece was in part a response to that, um, as well as comments by, say, uh, Walter Russell Mead, others who have who have made this comment that the Biden administration has very much been focusing on democracy, and I do not deny the rhetoric. There, there's definitely been the rhetoric that's been used, but when we actually start looking carefully. At the Biden administration's policy, and I think part of this is due to just the, if you will, erratic nature of the crises that they're trying to deal with and the policies they're trying to deal with, um, it is clear that that's not fully in line with what they're doing. They are seem, for example, more than happy to continue the long standing U.S. tradition of close relations with Saudi Arabia. And there's good reasons for that. there's reasons to question that, but there's good reasons for that, but they seem to be very content with continuing that policy um, also, if we look at the going back to my comment about the summit of democracies, there were quite a few countries who were part of that that there was questionable about the extent to which they were democracies this is this is what I mean by the fact that it's like it's not that democracy doesn't play a role. And democracy promotion and the defense of democracy doesn't play a role in the Biden foreign policy. But I think it's hard to say that it is the deciding factor for the Biden administration. I think the deciding factor for the Biden administration is who is a threat in the international system and what do we have to do to counter that threat? And just so happens that the threats that we're trying to counter are two countries that are not themselves democracies, Russia and China being most prominent in that regard. Of course, Iran being another country that is brought up in that conversation. And they are not democracies. So as a result, it, that makes it kind of an easy way to describe why the U.S. needs to be countering them. And I think that's part of the reason why this is brought up, why that language is used. It's easier to just say, you know, the world is divided into democracies and not democracies. We have to support democracies. We have to support Ukraine because there are democracies standing up against the autocratic Russia. Well, if Ukraine was itself, let's say Ukraine was a monarchy. Would that mean the U.S. would be unwilling to stop Russian aggression against Ukraine? I would think maybe not, because we actually, I mean, I I would think Biden might be a lot like George H.W. Bush, where Iraq invaded a monarchy. And we said, nope, that's not going to stand because of various reasons, U.S. interests in the region and and so forth. But of course, I'm referring to the first Gulf War, right? And even George H.W. Bush himself said that what's at stake Is more than one small country. He was referencing to Kuwait. He was saying it was a big idea about the new world order and about respect of boundaries and so on and so forth. So even though Biden might use democracy rhetoric as an easy way to explain why we have to do what we're doing, the reality is is I don't think that's decisive for what we're doing. I think the reason we're supporting Ukraine is because they were attacked by Russia. We have interest in wanting to prevent Russia from regaining influence. And reestablishing an empire in Eastern Europe. And I think there's good reasons for that. That's the reason why we're supporting Ukraine. Democracy is contributes to that, but is not decisive in that. Um, same thing with Taiwan. I think Taiwan, obviously being a democracy is correlated with the reasons that we wanted to support Taiwan, but I don't think is in itself decisive for why we need to support Taiwan. Um, and we can see that also looking back at the history of U.S. relations with Taiwan, that Biden is very much aware of that history and has even been part of that history. So I don't think that's also, you know, determinative, the factor influencing Biden's foreign policy. And so that's what I meant by those critiques is when people would say the Biden administration is ideologically driven to support democracy and that's what's leading it to make bad decisions and so forth. I'm saying no, I don't think the Biden administration is so focused on democracy that they're pursuing that despite all else. It's not to say, and it was actually interesting when Steve and I were having a recent debate about this. We actually agreed on a lot of things about maybe the Biden administration's overstretched; they're pursuing too many policies, but we just disagreed on exactly the role that democracy is playing in driving.
0: So I think that's correct. And I think you could probably apply that same explanation to many presidents going back. There's a lot of talk about values. And, you know, it's more interests that drive policy. But actually, it's that point that I want to ask my final question. So you're right, as as you were just kind of saying, ideological purity is often sacrificed for the sake of national interests. So you say these, the administration is sacrificing these values that are in their rhetoric for the sake of national interests. But isn't that profoundly subjective? I mean, what is the national interest? There isn't some objective standard here. We're really talking about this particular administration's, and in my opinion, warped view of what the U.S. national interest is. So it's not that they're, they're, they're violating these principles not for real gains in a competitive world but for the sake of policies that don't serve the national interest.
1: The way that I would put this is, and I think this is great, because this, this gets to a huge debate, even within the field of international relations, which is how do you even define national interests, right? And how do you not define in a way that's just circular to say that, well, whatever a country does must have been in their national interest because they did it, right? And for me, when I think about a country's national interests, I think that, especially when applied to the United States, I think that it is a matter of how that administration defines the threats to the United States, right? And you can look back and you can see that a lot of their foreign policy of various administrations is defined by what they view as the primary threats facing the United States. And and a lot of times this is captured in say the national security strategy written by administrations. Now, Biden came into office very clearly articulating who he thought the threats to the United States were. He said it was Russia and it was China. He said that was the key. Now, he also, of course, focused a lot. We're not talking about it because of you know our focus on foreign policy. He also talked about issues within the United States, you know, defending U.S. democracy and the defense of democracy within the United States. And I will say that when it comes to that, I do agree. I think Biden has made that a very much a focus of his domestic policy. But when it comes to foreign policy, He made clear that it was Russia and it was China. And those were the two key threats. And so that's national interest. And that's where I think going back to, for example, that summit of democracies, if it was really about ideological purity of democracy, there would have been some of the more questionable states would not have been invited, right? It would have been like, nope, we're focusing on democracies and this is what we're going to do and we're truly bringing together countries that are committed to democracy. But instead, it was, as I was saying, to me, I viewed it as a way of trying to build a coalition of countries to counter China. And that is really what you're doing. So hence, you sit there and you go, well, you know, should we really invite this country? Well, yes, we should, because we really kind of need their help with countering China. That's then what decides that you bring them in, even though from an ideological purity standpoint, you would say, no, that country is questionable in terms of their democracy. You could even make the case with Israel that, of course, there were a lot of concerns about Israel's democracy. Prior to October 7th of last year, you had the protests happening because of judicial reforms there. There were lots of questions in the United States about Netanyahu's commitment to democracy. And as a result, there there was really big questions about the extent to which the U.S. should stay committed to Israel, given that Israel is not committed to democracy. But come October 7th, those questions have kind of disappeared, right? And the reason why they disappeared is, you know, we could list a whole host of reasons why, obviously, we feel like, you know, what happened on October 7th was horrendous and we should support Israel there. But I think a bigger reason is that October 7th, the events of October 7th have very much been viewed in the context of U.S. national interest in terms of countering Iran, concerns that, you know, helping to, the perception that helping to defeat Hamas will also help counter Iran's influence in the region. And so as a result, We're willing to do what we need to do to support Israel, not because Israel is a democracy, because again, we were questioning, Biden administration was even questioning Netanyahu's commitment to democracy prior to October 7th, but because of something we perceive as our national interest in terms of countering threats in that region, specifically Hamas, and then related to Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis is Iran. So I think that to me, that's where we're seeing the notion that ideological purity for defense of democracy gets sacrificed for pursuing national interests.
0: Paul Post, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.